I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. Starting this week, we are doing a mini-series on media and culture, exploring the ways in which television, journalism, and other forms of entertainment and culture impact global relations. Our first guest joining us in this series is Tamer Nisbet. Tamer manages content strategy and analysis at a streaming platform, and until recently, had a focus on EMEA and Africa. Previously, she was at YouTube and Google. Tamer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So Tamer, tell us, how did you first become interested in this area? How did you become interested in media, content creation, entertainment? I think it started because I was obsessed with books. Like, I think I've always been obsessed with content in some way, shape, or form. But I read so much as a child that my family nickname was Book Anaconda because I'd read more than a worm. And I would just be so engrossed in this new world that I could see, like, instead of being in Brooklyn, which best borough, let's be real, but I was at Hogwarts or I was in Middle Earth. I was in Narnia. Obviously, I had a fantasy bent at that time. And so that love for books, I think, turned into a love of TV. It turned into a love of film. It turned into a love of music. And then when I went to work at Google and then after that, YouTube, it turned into a love of YouTube and user-generated content and seeing people who looked like me put on makeup and learn how to do that. Like, It all kind of came together, but I think it's just what are the stories that I was interested in seeing, whether they looked like something that I had done or something someone else had done that I could be interested in. And I went from there. I think that interest and because I loved it so much myself, I wanted to also think about how I can bring that joy to other people. And that ended up being through working in tech platforms. That ended up being through working at tech platforms. Do you think that's a universal story for? people? And how do you think about the end user in Amina and Africa and all the places that tech platforms touch? I think a lot of people that work in media are obsessed with media. Like it's just you want to watch all the TV shows, you want to watch all the films, or maybe you have a really niche thing that you like and you watched all of that. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you like everything, but I think that you love you love content if you work in the industry or else I think it would get pretty annoying to hear people talking about all the stuff that they liked and you're you're not part of it. On the end user, at the end of the day, everyone in the world likes entertainment. Like we if if it's possible and there's leisure time, you want to do something fun. And what does that look like? It kind of depends where you are. But I think, of course, with the advent of the Internet and really high quality uh, streaming and LTE and things, things of that sort, like people can now have access to stories through streaming that they just didn't have before. And so that means that the end user, it's your, it's your city, it's your state, it's your country, but it can also be the world depending on what type of content you're putting out. And so I think there's something for the content creator to feel like they have this expansive audience now, which I think is really fun for for that person. And for the end user, you can also go find anything you want from anywhere you want. And so that's, I think, the most fun thing about the 2020s. So when you first started working in this space, I mean, obviously you were on, you're working on platforms like YouTube, which are global, but you were 
I imagine you were probably more focused on domestic viewers and domestic markets. And then a little over a year ago, you moved to Amsterdam and started focusing on Middle East and Africa and different regions. So like, like walk us through, like, how did that change your understanding of like how media is consumed, what the trends are? Like that must have been a very big shift. In some ways it wasn't, in some ways it wasn't at all. I think because everyone, everyone likes entertainment (laughs) to a certain extent. And so people are going to watch shows that they love in all different contexts. I think my interest in and working outside of the domestic context actually also comes from books. I studied literature. My major was comparative literature and society in college. And I actually studied a mix of American and African and like Francophone literature, specifically from an African and Caribbean context. And so I had read all these really amazing African authors and especially like West African. And I just thought, like, how cool would it be to actually be able to work on that from a content perspective and not just from a read about it from a book perspective? Sort of the same way that everything else happened from books to TV and content. So when I got the opportunity to go there, I thought, like, this is this is going to be absolutely the best. And I think what I learned is that and this maybe this sounds very silly, but there is there is a raging entertainment industry in Africa. (laughs) Like, I think that sometimes people don't know, but Nollywood is like one of the biggest content. Explain what Nollywood is for people who haven't heard of it. So there's Hollywood. And so that's like the film and entertainment industry of Los Angeles. There's Bollywood, which is that for India. And then there's Nollywood, which is the same thing, but in Nigeria. And so this is like one of the biggest exporter of exporters of content, like in the entire world. And so there's this huge appetite for content in Nigeria. So maybe some people know about that. But there's also a huge appetite for content, like all throughout the content of Africa. And I mean, literally everywhere. And so there's there are streaming platforms, but there's also like huge linear cable networks. There's lots and lots of content being pumped out and people are really watching it. And those companies that are in the region are also doing really well and they have millions of subscribers. And so what does it look like to work at a global company and then to say, okay, my globe is not just the U.S., of course, it is the rest of the world. And how do we bring content to the rest of the world? Part of it is, of course, there's an excitement around watching a lot of U.S. content around the world. People want to have access to be able to watch something that's made in the U.S. Cool. They also want to watch something that's really high quality that comes from the place where they live. And so how do you make sure that people have it? You hire people who have worked in the region, you understand like what their content tastes are, and hopefully you give them a show that they are going to love and watch. And some of those shows look a little bit similar to what you might have seen in your own region, but maybe it's like localized for those people. They're using specific words. They're in specific places that resonate with people who are from that actual place. And so that's really one of the differences. But at the end of the day, people just want to relax. They want to be entertained. They want to watch something that they love. And so that's what my goal is to do around the world or no matter where I'm working. Did you find that there were either genres that were more interesting in the region? Because I, when I think of Bollywood, I think of like big theatrical musicals, hardcore dance set pieces. And like the U.S. just doesn't have a market for that, right? I mean, RRR has done very well, but like that, you know, the U.S., it's not every day that we're getting those type of, of movies and shows. 
are there genres that you're like, oh, this worked really well, or like narrative storytelling conventions that make sense in those contexts that maybe don't translate as well for us? I think every place is going to have some things that work a little bit better or that are going to be bigger. For example, in the U.S., you might think of like big, huge action Marvel movies. Like Those are going to do well, but there's also lots of other things that do well, but they didn't make a billion dollars. Like that's just not a fair comparison for all things. So I think there's, there, is a, there is space for most types of genres. One easy comparison is telenovelas. Like they do super well in Latin America. People watch them all day long. We also have soap operas here, but it's not the same sort of dynamic of like everyone in your family has watched that telenovela for 50 years or for 20 years or however long it's been on. There's literally like a thousand episodes of that show. So there are definitely genres that are going to do better in Africa or in certain parts of Europe or are going to do better in the U.S. And they're not necessarily they're not necessarily the same. But at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is give the people what they want. On the other hand, though, just because you've chosen the most popular genre does not mean that people are going to watch it. <laughs> like, there are so many other things that are important. It's the execution. It's the storyline. It's the character arcs. Like, do I actually care about what's happening to this person? And do I want to continue watching them for an hour and a half or for, you know, six or 10 episodes or something like that? And that's what you have to get right. The genre is important, but it's not the most important. It feels to me like a lot of at least in the U.S., we're now consuming a lot of content that it that is either made in or based in places all over the world. And some of it is reality TV and some of it is scripted. But, you know, a lot of it definitely isn't like realistic portrayals of those places. So, for example, I'm thinking of things like Young, Famous, and African or or Fauda, or Emily in Paris, or Squid Games. Like, on the one hand, it's, like, amazing that, like, something like Squid Games becomes such a phenomenon in the United States, and we're all watching a show that's entirely in subtitles. Also kind of amazing and fun to watch an Emily in Paris, but, like, also definitely not a realistic portrayal of what it's like to live live in neither of those places. And... That is like the nature of entertainment, obviously, but also like, I don't know, like, how do you think about that? Like when the content that's coming from Africa that folks in the U.S. might be most familiar with is Young Famous in Africa, like, is that progress? Is that backsliding? Like, how do you think about it? Here's the thing. As you were saying before, the content that we watch is not necessarily a realistic portrayal of everyday life. In fact. Maybe we don't want it to be like there's some fantasy element. There's like a romance. There's yeah, there's escape. someone who's living in a completely different country. There's an escape um, or you're getting you're digging down really deep into something that's exciting, but like not real. Like there's a zombie apocalypse like in The Last of Us or whatever. So there's something that's what is what is going to lead to that escape? What's going to lead to that like entertainment moment for you? And it doesn't really matter where it comes from. Is there something about like, what should you be watching from other countries and and how does that represent a specific person or a specific place? One show cannot possibly represent everything about a place. And so I think it's it's just important to keep that in mind. But to the extent that you want to watch that show or or that piece of content and learn something from it or get value and entertainment from that, I think that's good. 
I will say there is a, you know, there's this New York Times article recently about American expats living in Paris and how they're like kind of mad about Emily in Paris because they're like, this isn't what it's like. And like, it's so unrealistic. And I, as I was reading the article, I was kind of rolling my eyes because I was like, well, duh, this isn't what it's like. I mean, it's like a total fantasy. Like, what, like, who said this was realistic, you know? And so it, to me, it felt sort of unfair to the medium because it was like, this isn't like purporting to be like, the true experiences of a young woman like moving to a new country, right? And so I don't know. I feel like sometimes maybe we also are trying to like hold things to a standard that it was never intended to be held to, you know? And yeah, just, like, like it's supposed to be fun. And I mean, I get it. I lived in Paris for a year when I was an undergrad. And sometimes I'm like, man, I never would have made that mistake. Like, oh, you sound horrible when you speak French. These little things that make me very upset, but also... It's funny and people love it. And the outfits she's wearing are amazing, right? So again, not realistic. If anything, maybe there's some like angst about the fact that Emily's life is better than the average American expat. And we we all wish we could wear those dresses to a garden party. Zooming back, I know you worked at YouTube and you talked about your interest in sort of user-generated content. Obviously, there's been a lot of challenges around bad things that the internet now does and that we've seen and people weaponizing content that can go viral and be bad, whether that's misinformation or hate speech or or all of that stuff. As someone who works in content, how do you think about those issues and do you still have hope that user-generated content will make us better, bring more light to the world? Or are you sort of now jaded? No, I'm never, never jaded. Always hopeful. Glass half, glass half full is the type of person I am. I think to start with the last part, I, I'm not only hopeful, but I can already see that that's happened. Like user-generated content has absolutely opened up the door for people all over the world to have access to knowledge or interesting tidbits that they wouldn't have had before and has given other people the people creating that content, a new audience. I think it's opened up so many revenue generation opportunities. It's opened, it's opened up ways for people to make money, to start their own businesses. Like that's a really cool thing to have done. Or even maybe that's not going to be your entire salary, but that's going to be, you know, half or 30% of, of your income and you have multiple jobs. Like that's something that I think is really special and unique about user-generated content. Is the internet also a terrible place? You can find horrible things on the internet and people will put out bad things. And I think to a certain extent, when all of the user-generated content platforms began, they had a sense that these sorts of bad things could be put on their platforms. But they hid behind the safe harbor rules, right? Like when, and the safe harbor rule basically means that whatever is posted onto a company's platform they're not responsible for it. The person who posted it is responsible, which makes sense in a way, of course, like the person who put up something bad is the person in the wrong. But what it also meant was that these big companies didn't really have to take accountability for the bad stuff that was happening on their platform. They kind of tried, they hired some people, but they didn't have a really good system to stop bad things from going on their platform because they weren't incentivized to. And what that meant was that years later, it just got completely out of control. Who's to say that this could have really been different? But there is a chance that if in the beginning there had been 
greater rules around what was allowed to go on someone's platform. And if those those platforms had actually been responsible for that bad content, that they would have done a lot more to make sure that that content couldn't go on it. And then we come to a head where I think it's like 2016, 2017, tied ads are being shown against beheading videos, right? Like this is the, maybe that's not exactly what happened, but there's something, you know, something in that vein. And then ads go away and people are upset. And now all these companies are really scrambling and they're hiring thousands of vendors from all over the world to be looking at this horrible content instead of getting to the, the root problem, which is too late to address the root problem now in a way, because the, the platform is bigger and beyond, you know, the few people who are, are actually working at the company in comparison to the billions of people that are using it. So there will always be bad stuff. There will always be bad people. They will always be trying to post bad things. I do have hope for the future that companies will take that more seriously. I think they already have much more seriously than they did from like 2012 to 2016. Um, but we have to hold we have to hold them accountable. They this is the thing. Big, huge corporations that are giving you joy, especially like these user generated tech platforms, they won't do something unless you you really like make them do it. And so I think it's also on us as consumers to to hold them and to say, like, this is not OK. I don't want I don't want to see stuff like this <laughs> and I don't want you to to have things like this on your platform and I will use it if you do. I think that brings up just kind of a, a really interesting connection to the Emily in Paris problem of like shaking your fist at like, ah, this isn't like the real Paris. It's kind of not recognizing the sort of culture of a place. Like obviously Facebook and Myanmar has this huge, you know, that's always the example of there was a genocide happening in Myanmar because of what was posted on Facebook. And they had like two people that spoke the language doing trust and safety for the whole country. That doesn't make any sense. It's impossible. But trust and safety is just not a profit driver. And I think what's interesting about streaming, at least, is you're paying for it. Like, you don't have to pay for it if you don't like the stuff on there. You can go to a different platform or just withhold your money. And I think it's interesting to think about a world in which more of the things were like streaming. Like, how much would I actually pay to use Facebook Probably not the premium that I would pay for Apple TV Plus or Netflix or, or something else uh, because it's not the quality. It's not the same quality and it's not the same safety that I would get. Right. You're getting something different from them. I mean, the, here's the other thing, though, between there's a huge difference between like these big platforms where anyone can post something and then the platforms where you're getting this content that there's like content executives who are working on it and 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 buying it. On the user-generated side, like literally we could pick up our phones right now and put up a random two-second clip on, on any of these things. There's no, there's gatekeeping to a certain extent from some sort of algorithm. Like if you do something absolutely horrible, hopefully it catches you and you don't get to post your video. But there's not like a team that's deciding what's going to happen for each piece of content. And that's, that's just different on the streaming side. So the gating actually happens on a different level. So you're willing to pay differently for for those services. And also like each each of those kinds of companies has different problems. Like those streaming platforms are not dealing with bad video problems of the UGC platforms because they that's just not like what they're trying to do. Do you think over time, this is very speculative, that we're going to somehow like see a merging of these more like curated content platforms and like user generated content platforms? 
because I sometimes think about like, first we had scripted television and then we had reality TV shows and then we turned the camera around at ourselves. And then that became, you know, user generated content. And like in a weird way, I don't know if this like is true, but like my sense is like reality TV was kind of like the stepping stone to like just recording ourselves. And to be clear, like if I'm turning on Apple TV or whatever, like I don't really want to watch user generated content. I want to watch a really high production value, good <laughs> show. But like, I just wonder if at some point all this stuff is going to fuse somehow. I don't know. I think it's a good question. I think especially because you see lots of other things fusing. So here's here's an example. Like, let's take YouTube. They did try to fuse. They did have an originals, like long form content arm for a long time that I think was led by, it was like under Robert Kinsel, I think was led by Suzanne Daniels for a period of time. But they were actually trying to create high quality, high production value content alongside the content that you normally get from YouTube, which is free. I think one of the issues there was that kind of what you said, when you go to Apple TV Plus, you have paid your, you know, 10 or $15, you're expecting to see that. When you go to YouTube, especially at that time, you didn't pay uh, and you're expecting to see your, the, the person that you like for free. And so now all of a sudden YouTube has this arm where you have to pay to get this high quality content. But you're like, wait, that's actually against my behavior as a person. What's going on here? I don't think it was a bad idea. I think it made a lot of sense. They had the user base for it. But maybe the timing was like a little bit off. I'm curious to see if they would do something like that again. But I think that was like the first sort of merging of like the UGC and long form content platforms that we really saw on a large scale. Now, if you look at those platforms, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, they all have the exact same features. I'm only being slightly facetious when I say that. But YouTube was known for long form. You can now make a video up to 10 minutes on TikTok. YouTube has shorts. Instagram has reels. You can also make a longer form video on it. People have video podcasts on all of those platforms now. Like, Everything is a little bit turning into each other on that side. And so does that mean those will also turn into the sort of like longer form content streamers that we've seen? Probably not now, but I don't think it's I don't think but, it's impossible. But it's like a hot skip and a jump, right? Like I feel like Yeah, it's it's I feel like easy. TikTok stars like a, you know, Charlie D'Amelio, is that the right person I'm talking? <laughs> anyway, like she yes, now has her own job. TV show, right? And so, like, right, and and like vice versa with like the Kardashians, right? Like, where does their user generated content on Instagram end, and their like TV show on it's on Hulu now, right? Right. Yeah, I forgot they moved. Anyway, whatever. Like, it's like just showing my like point. But you go to two different places to see them. But you go to two different places. That's interesting. Yeah. YouTube went with their long form content one of the one of the strategies that they tried was taking their biggest YouTube stars and giving them these like high quality production shows. And the thought there is that people are going to go from watching them on free content to watching them not on free content. And that didn't quite work. And so I do think that we have this. We're we're used to watching people on multiple different platforms and that's okay. So does that mean that someone has to buy someone else in order for you to like get kind of get used to seeing someone on the same platform? But the brands maybe have to stay separate to your point because you're not you're not excited to pay to see someone on YouTube when you can see them for free. But you're excited to go to Hulu Plus to watch that reality show, even though you're kind of getting that on a different platform. But it feels higher brow and like that's what you're paying for. 
I wonder how much of it is those incentives of the platforms, right? So Netflix, Amazon, Apple, they you are paying for quality and you're hoping when you go on there that you're going to get that quality. And if you don't get it, then you're like, oh, I'm not going to pay $5 for this. Whereas YouTube has really high quality, really well-produced things. I mean, if you look at Mr. Beast, who's like the big thing in YouTube, his things are insanely produced, like bigger than any game show on any linear TV network, but they're cut in such a way and packaged in such a way that's perfect for YouTube and that engagement of like, well, here's a sponsored ad in the middle, and then here's all the ways that I'm going to keep you like coming back to the platform over and over and over again, which like Apple TV Plus, it's clear they don't care how much you come back to that platform. They're like, you're going to pay that $6. So whenever Ted Lasso season three comes out, it'll be right there. And so I, I do wonder how much of it is just the economics behind it, because like Donald Trump wouldn't do as well on TikTok as he does on Twitter. Like, it's just the, the different ways that the things are packaged, uh, I, I think, are interesting. Interesting. I think Donald Trump would do pretty well on TikTok. The controversy, uh, controversy sells, but. Well, but like TikTok is also trying to be like a gated community, right? They're trying, they have much higher sort of guidelines for what is and is not acceptable on their platform because it's all alg- algorithmically based and like following someone isn't like, like subscribing on YouTube. And they have their whole other issues, see Uyghur genocide, but we can talk about that another time. Going back to thinking about the impact of streaming on global entertainment, do you think that outside of the U.S., the U.S.'s reach through entertainment has been good? Has it been helpful that streamers have gone into Nollywood and said, hey, Nigerian content creators, we're here to help? Or is it, is it harder because they're not able to find their own voice and grow in their own way? That's a great question. I mean, I think it's, a, I think it's an overall positive. That's why I work, I work in streaming. That's like why I'm, I'm here. That's what, I, that's what I care about. I think there are a few different angles to that answer, though. And not everything is like 100% good. And I think that's, that's fair. Or maybe it doesn't always feel that way. When a streamer goes into a new place, sometimes there's, there's now an ability for a creator from that country to have, their, to have their content on a platform that reaches, you know, tens of millions of people. And they couldn't have necessarily had that opportunity before. And so I think that's a really beautiful opportunity for creators that are in different places. Not only do they have this audience reach, they also have the ability to potentially monetize it better than they could have before. On the other hand, does that also mean that creators then stop wanting to make content that's only going to be in their country and they only want to go to these big international streamers and now they don't care about what's going on? I think that that can sometimes be the rhetoric behind bigger players entering, entering a space. And I don't think that's true. What I've seen from creators is that they care so deeply about where they are from. They want to see their stories be told. And it could be on a big streamer. It could be on a smaller platform. And honestly, in fact, the, honestly, the fact that their content is on a bigger streamer has actually, in some cases, opened up space for other creators to have their content on big streamers or on the places that maybe 
the first creator's content would have been on that local platform, but now another creator gets a chance. And so it's actually just opening up the market and building more art and building more creatorship there. And so I think that's what's really beautiful and what's really important. And it's also important for those big players to enter the market in a local way, get to know the people who are there and also build up the market, not just with the writers and the the directors, but who's the below the line talent? What are some other educational programs that we can provide? And I think a lot of streamers are doing that in the places that they've entered and they see that also as, as a good. So I think it's definitely a net positive. Do you have any predictions, Tamer, about how streaming and user-generated content and new media, new platforms is going to change like American politics? Like I think a lot about when AOC was first elected to Congress and she was going through her like congressional freshman orientation and was like recording Instagram videos and being like, this is what it's like. And I remember being like, <laughs> oh my God, like, this is good for democracy. I mean, regardless what you think of AOC, but like some now like a, a freshman member of Congress is like taking me in to what this is actually like, right? And and they, and like, you know, she and other members of Congress were also streaming during all of the like craziness around electing a speaker. And like, it was just like, it was such a window into these worlds that we wouldn't otherwise access. And obviously social media and, you know, Twitter too. So not just like video, like has influenced politics in a big way, but let's stay away from like Facebook and Twitter, like really on like the video and streaming and user generated content side. Like, do you have any predictions about like how it might change, like how we engage in politics in the U.S.? I mean, I think to your point, it's, it's already changed and that we now have this window into the room where it happens to steal from Hamilton, but literally like I had never seen, I'm not going to watch C-SPAN on a regular basis, right? But to see someone's video that I can follow on on Instagram or something, like I think that's cool and it has opened it up. Does that also make people more interested in joining the political world? I think that you'll probably see people who they wouldn't have necessarily been interested in politics. Now they see that person who's there. I think a lot of times people say like, you have to see it to be it. I don't necessarily ascribe to that. I do think that you can be something without like necessarily seeing someone in front of you do it. But it is nicer. It is easier. And so now, you know, women of color are seeing all of these people that look like them. Does that mean that they'll want to get into politics, too? I'm really curious to see what the next generation of Congress men and women actually looks like and people in the House, because now like a totally different generation of people who look different has the ability to access that space and to see themselves there. So I think that's a big difference. Also, I think that laws are going to start to catch up with some of the things that we've been talking about. So there's already lots of laws around like, you know, limiting safe harbor and who can post what, how ads can track you and to what extent. And so I think some of these players that are, they're so prolific now Every time a player gets super big, like something else is going to come and take over. So laws are going to catch up to them. They're going to be the dinosaurs, the very big platform dinosaurs. It's not like they're not going to have money or that it's not going to be a great thing to work there. But there's going to be something else that comes up that is going to go so fast and we're going to be on our heels, whereas the laws are just going to catch up, I think, with like the biggest behemoths that we have now. That is something I haven't thought about is the next wave of sort of evolution in this space and i wonder how chat gpt will work with genre fiction because you know there's a lot of romance novels out there 
that chat GPT can pull from. So my burgeoning career as a romance novelist, I think, will have to be put on hold. The last question I have before we go to our final segment um, is I'd love to get a content recommendation from you and Zoe, if you have one as well, for African or Middle Eastern content that we should check out, whether that's movies, TV, music, just something that maybe our listeners have never heard before. So we mentioned this one, Young Babes in African. It is a reality series that it's similar to so, like some other sort of ensemble cast reality series that you might think of. But the people who are in the show based in South Africa, but they're from all over the continent. And so just seeing, I think, Africa, honestly, in a different light, that was actually one of the shows that you mentioned as like, is this a fair viewing of Africa, but I actually think it shows like, oh, there's like lots of wealth and like all this fun things that's happening in Africa. And it's not necessarily like lions and poverty, which also isn't that, but I think is sometimes more of the image that we see. So I think that's a super fun show. Also, I love reality TV, so highly recommend. And then another one would be Blood Sisters, which is a Nigerian show. It's uh, very dramatic and lots of mystery and intrigue. And those are both like pretty fun shows to watch from the continent. To give Zoe one more second to come up with her piece of content, I will throw out, I, I'm a big music person. Um, if you've never heard of Ibrahim Malouf, he is a French-Lebanese trumpet player. He fled Lebanon with his family as a child during the Lebanese Civil War. He grew up in France. But what's so interesting about him, other than he does like jazz fusion, is that he's added a fourth valve to his trumpet, so it does quarter tones, which is what makes Arabic music sound Arabic, right? They have notes that Western music doesn't play and doesn't play with. And so it just is a really interesting fusion of not just, ah, uh, we're bringing instruments on, but it's a, a classical Western instrument played in a Eastern way, which is really, really interesting. So I'd highly recommend it. I love his his duets, which are piano and um trumpet especially. Zoe, what do you have? I guess I'll go north a little bit because you said we could also say Middle East or Africa. And I was thinking about this movie recently. I saw it a couple of years ago, but it's a movie from Iran called About Ellie. And it was sort of top of mind because I think Iran has been top of mind for lots of people these days. But it's about a group of friends that goes on a picnic and one of them disappears and it becomes this total like psychological thriller and just an amazing movie and uh, would highly recommend. Perfect. So with that, let's go to our final segment where we each bring something either cultural or political that we've been following in the news. Zoe, why don't you kick us off? Sure. So one thing uh, that I've been following on kind of a lighter note is that apparently pretty recently photos of President Biden's like official vehicle in Washington, D.C. have revealed that he has removed the D.C. license plate that says end taxation without representation and replaced it with a, I guess, uh, less political one which apparently there's a kind of like rich history of presidents who have and haven't had that classic DC license plate. So I think if I have this right, originally Clinton did have it. Then George W. Bush removed them. Then 
Barack Obama brought them back and then Trump removed them. And now I guess Biden also has removed them. Something like that. I'm sure I'm getting the history wrong. But as a former D.C. resident, I don't know. I'm a little offended. That's what I'm following. Tamar, what are you following this week? I am following George Santos. This has been a multi-week long journey. Um, I'm from New York City, so I feel especially invested in what's going on. But George Santos is a great con man, basically. He was voted in as a congressman based on lots of different things about his story, which were honestly beautiful. He had like moved from the from Brazil to the U.S. He had made his way in the world. He had worked at a bank and kind of like made a life for himself as an investor and was now going to represent the people of Congress. Then find out that he didn't actually go to the college he said he went to. He never worked at Goldman or City. His resume was completely made up. And basically all the banks and, and schools were like, we, we don't know him. Like, don't, don't, uh, don't say he went here. And once Republicans actually found that out, they didn't kick him out because they have such a slim majority. And so like, to a certain extent, I get it. But it's also crazy. He was actually still put on different committees. And he recently recused himself because obviously that's so crazy. But I just I'm so intrigued. I'm fascinated. I need someone to option this story and make it into a limited series. This week, I wanted to highlight a little piece of news that I think went under the radar for most people. About a week ago, the New York Times reported that Russia and Iran are working to connect their banking systems. The reason this matters is because it makes it harder for us to enforce sanctions and reduces our power over the global financial system. The U.S. has been significantly increasing its use of financial sanctions, with not a huge amount of discussion in the public sector on its collateral effects on the larger financial system. So if you're looking for what your next research project should be, I would highly suggest digging into this issue and projecting where this might go if we continue to use sanctions in this way. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at Z Weinberg, and follow Tamer in the credits of your favorite streamer. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by China's Antique Weapons and Surveillance Systems Emporium. We hope you like our recent guerrilla marketing campaign, but please remember, if you break it, you buy it. So after you've finished fishing for a giant balloon off the coast of Myrtle Beach, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy. Oh,